Supper. Out of curiosity, am I silent on this side pretty much? We tried. So, we don't know what the problem is. If you can endure, we'll be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. We've been talking about suffering, so hopefully it's not that deep a suffering for you all. This is the section in which Paul gives his last commands to the people at Philippi. Uh, Maybe I should say formally in the letter. Uh, The letter hits its conclusion here, and the last elements are encouraging and more personal, whereas this is where he's concluding that exhortation element of the letter to the Philippians. And he has two commands in these verses. I think they're essential for us to understand. Listen carefully as I read God's Word. Scripture says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, introduce this text this morning, I, I, I think it's not uncommon that we wrestle with the application of this text and don't even know it. Uh, James says that a double-minded man is unstable. In the previous verse, if you look back into uh, verses 6 and 7, there's this call away from anxiety. This call to put our hope and confidence firmly in God and do so through the uh, ministry of prayer trusting that God will guard our hearts and our minds. We live in a society that is filled with anxieties. In fact, uh, if you want to be anxious, I just want to strongly encourage you, if you need to strengthen your anxiety, you should watch Fox News and live on social media. You will find people more beautiful than you, happier than you, spending money freer than you, and you'll realize your life is horrible you'll realize there are things to worry about you never knew that you needed to worry about. You'll be reminded daily that our country is going down the drain and there's nothing you can do about it except wring your hands and vote for the person we want. How many elections in the last five election cycles have you heard something like this from some radio commentator? I firmly believe that this is the most important election of our lifetimes. I don't know how many times you can say that with integrity. But it seems like you're just saying the same thing, hoping for that intense response of the listener of concern and anxiousness. We are a church, generally speaking, across this country and a society filled with an epidemic of anti-anxiety meds. We are people who are constantly worried. We respond poorly to circumstances and pressures and tensions in life. It is not uncommon that you'll see men who are honorable men bounce from job to job to job because they cannot get along with coworkers. You'll find that there is a constant desire to move to greener pastures, whether it is a state not named California, where government and culture are more to our liking, where the government takes less of our money, 
I can sympathize with that one. But I wonder in this, if we have failed to recognize the massive implications and the high calling of Scripture on our lives. I want you to look again in verse 8 of chapter 4 and challenge yourself by looking in the mirror and considering just the simple meaning of the text. You do not have to be a Greek expert to hear the clarion call to change in these words. Brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. I wonder if Fox News heard that, if they'd say, please don't do that. I wonder if your social media feed were filtered by anything except those things, how much would be left remaining for you to look at. I think it would drastically alter our lives. Let me suggest to you that this is not a new theme in Philippians. I want you to go back to chapter 1 with me. I think one of the central themes, in fact, I, I might even make the argument, the central theme of the letter to the Philippians is to have a mindset of heaven leading to joy in suffering. You could say it more simply. Set your mind on heaven so that you can suffer with joy. But the central theme there is mind, thinking, thought, feelings. It's not joy. Joy is the outcome. But you don't get joy if you don't work on your mind. So look again with me, verse 7 of chapter 1. This is a word for mind, and I really don't appreciate the ESV's translation because I think it loses it, but it's, it's consistent with the Greek idea. The mind would be the, 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 the kind of the inner being. It would be our feelings, our thoughts, our intellect, our will. It would be all of that complexity is, is mentioned in this idea. He says, it is right for me to think this way about you all in verse 7. The ESV translates it, feel. Look down in verse 127. Scripture says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. He's calling for unity of mind. He repeats it. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. He's really pressing the point, isn't he? Look down in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind, the same mindset that Christ had as he obeyed the Father, as he walked in obedience to the cross, becoming a slave, obedient to the point of death. If you were to look at the examples of Epaphroditus and Timothy, they're both given as people who share the same mindset as the Apostle Paul. Look down in chapter 3, verse Excuse me, yeah, chapter 3, verse 4. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason, so he's going after their mindset here. And in verse 15 of chapter 3, he again challenges. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. He says, hey, some of you are immature because you think this way. Instead, in, in verse 15, he says, you should think this way. Verse 19. These people have their end as destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, and they set their minds on earthly things. And then chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat Eudia, I entreat Syntyche, have the same mind in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 7, 
It's the peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds. So when you come to verse 8 of chapter 4, and you're like, okay, this is the verse that talks about our thinking. You have missed a lot. The book is constantly challenging us in our thoughts and our minds and how we approach life. It says, think this way. We need to think about the things of heaven, chapter 1, verse 27. We need to have unity in our thoughts and our doctrine. And that unity is, is derived from us all having the same mindset as Christ. The problem with Judea and Syntyche is they have disagreeable minds. The problem with the church in chapter 3 is their minds are immature and they need to have a mind like the Apostle Paul is exampling, the mindset of Christ. The Christian faith is one that is deliberate and deep in thought. It is not one that is anchored to feeling. I do think that is probably one of the challenges of our age is that the measure of a good moment in our Christian life is one in which we feel good. One in which we feel the divine presence. One in which we feel moved by the emotion of the speaker. We measure a speaker merely on how much he moves our feelings, not the content of the exhortation nor the biblicalness of the doctrine. This is trouble. This indicts all of us. We would rather feel good about church than actually have a church that makes us think good. We come to chapter 4 and he gives this limitation kind of the character of our mind, our thinking. And he gives this litany, it's, it's six adjectives and two nouns, but just eight virtues, right? And in fact, they're overlapping. It kind of reminds me of the Olympic rings where they're all overlapping a little bit. So if we're looking for precise definitions of, of eight totally distinct virtues, I don't think we understand. It, it's, it's by giving the multiplicity of, of ideas, he helps us helps us focus, generally speaking, get rid of the garbage, generally speaking. I'm sure he could have added more virtues, which is why I think you get these summary statements, those last two nouns. Let me go through them quickly so that you and I might define for ourselves the character of what a godly mindset is. A mindset that, like James warns us, isn't double-minded. That allows us to be steadfast. Really, I think in many ways, this is the outflow of standing firm, verse 1, in the Lord. How do we stand, for, stand firm? How do we avoid anxiety? How do we have the same mindset? Well, we think about things that are true, right? We think about things that are, are true to life. Now, essentially, I think we could probably build a foundation this way. The Scripture defines truth. We could center that truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ and lead from there to those implications that are derived rightly from that truth. I don't think the Apostle Paul is telling us to consider 2 plus 2 is 4. To think about that, I don't think that's the point of the text. I think he's talking about those spiritual truths. As we evaluate life, as we consider our own behavior, as we evaluate others, as we suffer, we are to consider those things that are true. I think those things that are true often escape us. For instance, are you suffering for no reason? Is your suffering risking anything of eternal value. The Apostle Paul would say no, and in fact, oftentimes suffering is the pathway to increasing your eternal treasure. But in the middle of suffering, often our first thought is, how do I get away from this? But if God has called you to suffer, he has called you to a pathway to glory, 
to reward in heaven, and often increasing Christ-likeness. Right? Trials increase our Christ-likeness. So, so our gracious and loving Father says, here you go, my child. I will give you suffering. Our first prayer, our prayer meeting tonight, wouldn't surprise me that that metaphorical Christian would raise their hand and be like, I'm under trial. Can you pray that it quits soon? Tell me that's not how we think. A gracious Father says, I've given you this gracious gift of a trial that your reward in heaven might grow, that the eternal treasures you have might grow, that your Christ-likeness might grow. And our first thought is, God, take it back. I don't want this gift. But if we think about things that are true, we recognize that the hard situations of life, the challenging moments, the trials God puts us in, are for our good. First Peter would say they're necessary. And that they purify us so that our faith, which is so much more precious than gold, might result in our praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yet when we enter hard times, our first thought is, please stop, this hurts. And we can all sympathize, no one wants to be hurting. And so the church can gather around and as we think and call them to think about things that are true, we say evaluate life on the basis of truth. Or perhaps we could counsel others going through trials and ask them not how to escape the trial, but ask them to meditate on God's expectations for them. So you meet a couple that's struggling within their marriage. You meet a child that's having a hard time with a parent that's treating them roughly. And, and often our call is not to help them consider their responsibility, but to help them consider how to confront the other. Right, so a wife comes and complains about a husband or a child about their parents, and maybe we should first say, what does God ask of you in terms of your parents? You should obey them. You should honor them. In fact, God gives these with promise. God didn't command these things for no reason. He commanded them because it's difficult. It's not natural. What's natural is disobedience. Ask any parent of a three-year-old. We know that this is natural, and you might be 15 or 17 or 21 and struggling with how to respond to your parents. Well, let me just tell you how you respond to your parents. Just think about things that are true. Well, what's true? God gave them to you. They're a precious gift. Honor them. Obey them. Trust the Lord to use them. Pray for them. Have you done those things yet? Let's do that. Let's think these true thoughts before we move on. For self-counsel. If you're struggling in relationships, if you're struggling with circumstances, whether it's work or whatever else, think about what is true. Think about your responsibilities as revealed in God's word. Think about the hope and the, the help that God gives you, the grace that he supplies and supports you with. Think about the goodness of God. You know this is true. Often what we do is we meditate on the trouble. We meditate on the problem. We meditate on the bums that caused it. And so we have these thoughts of frustration circling our head like planes at an airport that can't land. And we get angry at people around us. We're frustrated by our circumstances because we just dwell on them and those planes never land. We wonder why our souls are anxious. God has not called us to change others. He's called us to submit to his plan and to walk in holiness. Think about what is true and honorable, he says. This word is only used a few times in Scripture. Deacons are called to be honorable, and then their wives are called to be honorable. 
Old men in Titus 2 are called to be honorable. That is worthy of respect and regard, valuable and precious. It speaks to a little bit of dignity. So we would consider that old men should be dignified. When you have an old man laughing at dirty jokes like a junior hire, something's wrong. I jokingly tell people that men never grow up, and there is a lot of truth to that. And perhaps that's why Paul says, be dignified, older men. Grow up. Show character and honorability. Be honorable. But there's dishonorable lifestyles. There's coarse jesting. There's foolish behavior. There's wicked imaginations. These are to be rejected as unsuitable for any believer. Think about things that have value and worth. Think about those things that are just and right. It's interesting in the scripture reading this morning, Nehemiah finds out that Jewish people are pressing others through interest. And he hears about it and he's angry. And he says, this is going to stop, right? You're listening to the scripture reading this morning. There's a man who recognizes what is just. You don't get there without meditating and thinking about things that are righteous and true and just. Think about things that are fair. The equitable outplay of circumstances, particularly for which you're in control, parents, dads, bosses. You should be someone who your employees, your children, your spouse knows you are fair. That's what it means to be just, is to act with righteousness towards those that are under your authority or those you have control of. It is to look at society and recognize we have injustice in our society. It is also to recognize that a lot that's called injustice is not unjust. But if you're meditating on justice, you have an evaluation of what is good in society and what is not because you're considering, you're thinking about, you deliberate upon what is just. You think about things like Matthew 7, whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do for them. And so within the home, you don't take advantage of others because you're asking yourself, if I, if I was on the other side of my words, what would I want to hear? If I was a child in my house, what would I want my parents to act like? If I was married to me, what would be fair? We think about things that are pure, free from pollution, free from the ugliness of the world, the things that are common and debased. The things that, that we should be ashamed to speak publicly, we should not be thinking about privately. If we were to glimpse into your mind and, and see what you're actually thinking, would you be ashamed? If it is, or if you would be ashamed, then perhaps you're not thinking purely. This person cultivates a mind that delights in what is good and decent and pure. Things that are lovely actually speaks to those that are visibly beautiful. It's a, it's a word that, that is meant to draw our minds to an image that is admirable and pleasing to our eyes. Good art is beautiful. I imagine to some of you, good design on a building is beautiful. But there's something that, that is intrinsically good about good music. And when you listen to it and it moves you to good virtues, it's to be commended and to be, to be an object which we delight in, like our Creator, who has made this world for us to enjoy. 
Right? There's, not, there's not one blade of grass, Calvin says, that has, has not been designed for our joy. And so as we look at God's creation, as we see a masterpiece, whether it's an orchestra piece or whether it's a fantastic film that, that calls us to virtue and displays the goodness of virtue and the evilness of sin and our hearts delight in these things, that's what we should be doing. Right? Our entertainment should call us to good virtue. What is lovely and charming and glorious to consider, that is where our mind should be directed. And I would even go so far as to say modern sports can be done well in such a way that the skill of the play, of the play calling, of the interaction of the athletes can be done in such a way that anyone who is a connoisseur of the sport can see the skill and the beauty in it. It is sad that our, our culture, whether it's politics or sports, is delighting in the cheap, the tawdry, the ugly, and the hurtful. Right? The player that, after doing some fantastically athletic maneuver, taunts his opponent with ugliness, glories in the injury caused to another, is simply so otherworldly for those who set their minds on the things of heaven. So the athlete who humbly and graciously loses or graciously wins is lovely. And these are the things that the Christian considers and ponders and plans to do and to be. We are to be considering those things that are commendable, those things that are worthy of praise, that God praises in his scripture that are exalted as, as valuable and good. Deeds and opportunities and thoughts that are worth rewarding are those things that we consider. It's not uncommon for people to get commendations for good work. So if you're an employee, you think about those things. What are the types of things my employer commends? I will think about how to do those things. What are the types of things that my spouse is pleased with? This is what I should think about. He says excellence. That word for excellence is erite. You might have heard that before. It's a Greek word for virtue. It's a common Greek word. It's used in 1 Peter when it says that we proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It says we proclaim his excellencies, his virtues. So God is described as a virtuous God. Boy, virtues are present in the gospel call out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Is it not mercy and goodness and holiness and patience and kindness and sacrifice, and holiness, and love. Is it not these things? Isn't it God's faithfulness to keep his word when he promised in the garden to rescue Eve through her future son? God is faithful to his word. And so we contemplate these things, we fill our thoughts with these things, and we pursue them in our own lives as we think about them. We take to heart the thoughts of Luke when he records Jesus' words that as a man is in his heart, these are the things he does. Right? A good tree produces good fruit. Well, how do you get to be a good tree? How do you get your roots good? You make the contemplation of your heart virtuous. So that the fruit of your tree is good fruit. 
worthy of praise. Final clarification demands we seek to do and to think about those things that bring God's approval. Right, the praise of God on his creatures. What in this world ignites your joy? That's a reflection of what you think is good. So what ignites God's joy? That is what I want to think about. That is what the scripture calls me to consider, to ponder. This person is profoundly aware that he lives for the pleasure of God and it is these things that captivate his imagination. Let me just say a couple words about these bundle of, of I'll call them virtues in general. These bundle of virtues. I think one of the ways in which we struggle with these is in our imagination. If your heart is filled with worry, it is not filled with these things. So having just said in verses 6 and 7, don't be anxious. Instead, pray with thanksgiving that the deliberate heart of the anxious or depressed soul has got to be to discipline themselves to move from horrific imaginations, anxious thoughts, dreams about what could possibly go horribly wrong, and to deliberately move to thinking about these virtues, to considering them, to contemplating them. But I think it's more than that. I want you to imagine that a young girl who is single is desperately dreaming of the day when she will finally be married. We might not condemn that girl for that dream, but that dream delayed will lead to sorrow. That dream unfulfilled might lead to longing and disappointment. It might lead to anxiety. Am I pretty enough? Am I, am I funny? Why don't boys like me? Further, when she does get married, and in fact all her dreams don't come true because he's not that guy, no one is that guy, then there's disappointment. Because frankly, in dreams that don't seem so corrupted at 19 when you're single and don't have a guy, actually do lead to spiritual, deep hurt. And I think sometimes we look at this and it's like, you know, as maybe a young man struggling to think pure thoughts, he's going to this person like, whatsoever is pure. God, give me strength to think about pure things. And we can see so clearly, yes, you need to work on purity. Do it. Repent of impurity. That sometimes we are very negligent to capture our dreams and bring them into the obedience of this text. And so we have dreams and disappointments and sorrows that don't immediately bear fruit of misery or wickedness, but in fact will lead to a path of real sorrow because we're not meditating about what is true. We're not meditating on what is good and lovely, is virtuous, is praiseworthy. We're instead letting our dreams, our imaginations, our anxieties move without controlling them. So I want to suggest to you that when we come to verse 8, most of us, like the similar commands in verse 6, do not take to heart the massive obligation of a command. This is an imperative. Imperatives are commands. So when I read... Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. When I read that list, this is not merely a recommendation for better living. 
Because he, he concludes with this thought. Think, imperative, think this way. Think about these things. The implication would be that to reject these things, to ponder other things, is in fact sin. Now, let me just suggest to you, there's at least two implications every time I see a command like that. That this is possible. So those of you who have imaginations and anxieties that brutalize your soul, for those of you that feel like you're in bondage to impurity, to pornography, to sexual sins, hear clearly, if God commands you to do otherwise, you can. The second implication is, by his grace alone. Right? God is not simply saying, hey, reach the stars in your own power. No one could do that. He is saying, this type of work is your obligation I mean, even notice the promise that comes at the end of verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. The God who gives peace will be present. Go back to verse 7. How does he end? That, that God's peace will guard your hearts and your, your minds. This verse is sandwiched like an Oreo cookie. Right? Like, we have God's peace ending with the God of peace being with you. And in the middle, he's saying, so grab a hold of your thoughts and own them and move them towards this virtuous lifestyle of thinking. Some of us need to repent of our moving watching. We don't just, I mean, I would hope we have enough awareness in our Christian lives not to be watching just absolute smut. Some of you love violent movies. You need to take carefully the warning in the Old Testament where, for instance, Nineveh is condemned because of their love for violence. They gloried in their violence. Any Christian who reads the minor prophets should be shaking if their movie appetite is riddled with violent movies. God wrecked that city. I mean, Jonah preached, they repented, but 80 years later, it seems like they're done. They're gone. How do you think about things that are pure while watching sleazy stuff, sitcoms that have jokes that are just debased and filled with trash? How do you have a mind that is captivated by what is lovely and of good report, praiseworthy, as you fly through Instagram, coveting the beauty of all the ladies that you don't think you match up to? neither good for you, nor is it obedient to the text. The grace of this passage is peace to those who obey it. I'm concerned that we have, we have a culture that has told us we are victims of our minds. Like if you have anxiety, if you struggle with depression, we pity you as though this is some external thing happening to you. Now listen, we, we all will have dark moments where suffering and sorrows and anxieties pummel us. But there is a responsibility and a grace promise in this text for how to battle within our minds. Think about these things. Stealing 
what Caleb mentioned last week, and he's probably stealing it from someone else, but he's smart enough, he might have invented this thought. If your mind is filled with anxieties, the way to get those anxieties out is to fill it with something else. Just like if you want to empty a vessel filled with air, you don't just suck on it with a vacuum. Just fill it with water and the air is gone. And like the pure water that should flow through our souls, the peace of God, as you fill your mind with thoughts of virtue, God grants his presence and his peace. Now as we look at this text, uh, I, I do want to like pull back just a hair on the whole of Scripture for a moment and challenge you to be people who are disciplined in your thoughts. But as, as we look at this text, verse 8 ends with, think about these things. And if you read verse 9 then, he says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So you should see that parallel there because it sets us up for next week for part two of, of living with stability. But part one is, think these things. What's part two? Practice these things. This is who you are on the inside. This is how you live it out. That's not unintentional. The foundation for your life is your mind. Right? You do not do things without thinking about them. Right? Your mind, your heart, in the Old Testament, the same idea, is, is how you move. It's how you act. It's the emotions by which you respond to sorrow and, and hurt or injury or arguments. Right? Those emotions come from your mind. Let me read what Lloyd-Jones said. This is concerning Matthew 6.30. He says, Faith, according to our Lord's teaching in this paragraph, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. We must spend more time in studying our Lord's lessons, in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic. We must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. This is not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them. Draw your deductions. Look at the grass, look at the lilies of the field and consider them. Faith, if you like, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything else seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with a person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thoughts, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes around and around in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That is the absence of thoughts, a failure to think. If I could just paraphrase Lloyd-Jones and then tie it in with Scripture. When trials hit us, we respond with feelings oftentimes. We respond intuitively. We don't slow down and think. We don't consider what God asks of us. We don't consider what is true. We don't consider the eternal values of the Christian. We don't consider what heaven calls us to do. We don't think. I, I, I know physically I'm this way. When I get hit in the head, my anger goes from not angry at all, like minding my own business, having fun, doing something. I stand up quickly and hit the corner of a cabinet. Boom, I'm angry. I'm like, I don't think. I don't know what happened. I'm not even angry at anyone. I'm just like, hangry. Like, I don't know if anyone else is like that. But, like, if you just, like, stop, like, pause, like, out-of-body experience, step back and look at me. 
Like, what is wrong with you, Mark? It's not like the cabinet like reached out, like, oh, I'm gonna do this. Watch this, guys. The cabinet's not thinking. It's me. I'm the dumb one. If I should be angry at anyone, it's me. And what is my anger gonna do? At like, like if I express it physically, what I'm gonna punch the cabinet? The cabinet's not hurt. My hand is. And maybe the cabinet's broken now. And now I'm angry because I have a broken cabinet to fix. Anger makes no sense in that situation. How, how do we not see that when someone hurts us? Like, it is not rational to attack others when they hurt us. But it's very human. But we don't think. So God calls us to prepare for moments where temptation drills us, where as Lloyd-Jones says, it bludgeons us. And our first responses are neither holy nor virtuous. The Christian is called to think. I've got to tell you in all confession, I'm halfway through my notes. Some of you know that on the outline. You're like, wait, we haven't gotten to point two, and there's only two points. Don't be anxious. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cut it off and briefly give you a couple points that next week we can look in, in verse 9 together. Let me just suggest to you the Lord cares about your minds. You can sin within your minds. Psalm 104, 34, may the meditation my mind be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 19 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Remember heart is, is mind internal workings in the Old Testament. Heart is not feelings almost ever in scripture. New Testament the word for feelings is your stomach. Splagna. Just this great Greek word. It's your bowels. Right? So like you read the King James it's like bowels of mercy. It's like affections of mercy. In the New Testament, Old Testament, when you hear heart, you should be thinking, my cognitive process is my faith and my will. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my mind, then, be pleasing, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Commands for holy thinking. Look at 1 Peter 1.13. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Colossians 3. Set your mind on things that are above. Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are called to harness our mind and manage its movements and its thoughts. If your mind is a freewheeling mind, it is dangerous to you and everyone around you. Manage it. Take control. Trust God's grace. If you want peace in this life, it starts not by relaxing and thinking your mind is in control, but by deliberately taking control of your thoughts. The importance of the mind cannot be overstated. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, which means your, your mind, your emotions, the, the, the whole kind of internal person that makes decisions. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Luke 6, 45, I already cited earlier, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Ephesians 4, 22, 
be renewed in the spirit of your minds after the likeness of the one who created you. Romans 8, 5 through 6. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. See, it's a mindset. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the things of the flesh is death. To set your mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. Right? Like, that's exactly what Philippians says. Right? It's peace. James 1.6, a double-minded man is unstable. It is so essential that we battle to harness our minds and move our thoughts to be virtuous, pure, honorable, just, pure, praiseworthy, and excellent. If your mind is a runaway horse, trampling innocence, and leading you to broken relationships. Trust the grace of God. Work hard at thinking. Think good thoughts. Think blind thoughts. Think God's thoughts. Deliberately remove the things in your life that call your attention away from what is good and holy and right. Be thoughtful in your entertainment. If you watch something that is I think it's all the rage right now is gray heroes. So neither they're neither like the white hats or the black hats. You know, like the black hats are like your villains, your white hats are your really goody two shoes. You know, like Batman used to be. You know? And now they're all like gray. Right? They're the conflicted kind of imperfect heroes. Evaluate that stuff. Do we really want to model our behavior after those types of people. It allows us to be really okay with our imperfect lives. Aren't you thankful for a Savior who's all holy and good? Who one day will make you gloriously good? Why would we settle for any heroes that are gray? As you evaluate your entertainment and it's calling us to actions and characteristics that are gray, as Donald Trump is honored for being a fighter who is not virtuous. The Christian has to appreciate what is virtuous within our politicians and filter out what is not. And just because he gets into the muck with the pigs and fights like a pig does not mean we should honor him. I appreciate someone who fights for me. I don't appreciate someone who fights and is an example to others of doing so without virtue. Nor should we honor him for his virtueless battling. So let's be thoughtful about how we evaluate a world that's complex enough that Donald Trump is neither a villain nor is he our savior. That's the type of thinking God demands of the Christian. That we would not lionize the gray heroes of our culture but that with discernment we consider what is pure, we consider what is good, we consider what is respectable, what is worthy of praise, and we consider those things as the contemplation, the meditation, and the worthy thoughts of our lives. And we filter, because we live in a mucky, messy, sinful world. And so we work hard at filtering those things out 
than thinking about this world as is true. You might really appreciate a politician who takes the bull by the horns. But if he does so in a way that displeases Jesus, have enough wisdom to love a president who gets things done, but don't appreciate the way he gets it done. I think that's the way a Christian has to work through a lot of the worldly stuff that we live in. Christ calls us to live in the world, but to not become worldly and sinful like it. So work hard at your thoughts. Let's think well. And the God of peace will be with you. That's incredible. The God who shuts the mouths of lions, who feeds Israel in the desert by giving manna from heaven, the God who calms the storm, who, the God who out of nothing makes everything, the God who holds this world together will be not with y'all, but you. That's amazing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that our good hope in this life is you. We live in a world that fills our ears and our eyes with things that are the opposite of what Scripture calls us to. Things that are impure, ugly, things that are low and debased, things that are unjust. Father, would you forgive us for enjoying the pleasure that sin offers, the entertainment of these things, the illicit pleasure of meditating on the evil, even the pride with which we look at evil and we say we are glad we are not like that. Father, forgive us for not managing our thoughts, purifying, and repenting when needed. I ask that you would fill your church with holiness, Lord, that we would love what is good and virtuous. We would make our hearts and our minds love and consider those things that are just and true and right. Lord, would you rescue our young women from social media's evils? Would you save our men from pornography? Would you give us hearts that are content with what you've called us to, whether it's suffering, whether it's wealth, whether it's poverty, whether it's the challenges of a family at unrest, Lord, help us to trust you and be content. Father, I ask that you would give us a gentleness with others that derives its source of stability from trusting in Christ and thinking about things that are virtuous and good. Help us to be steadfast, standing firm in the Lord. We ask of you, the one who promises to guard our hearts and minds, that you would do this act in this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.